You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, The Lover and Hannah, Simon Hopton will describe the emotional unfolding story of the bridegroom and his bride from the Song of Songs. How the lover, without embarrassment, portray his love. Then, Denise Fairbrother reveals the moving story of a mother who appeals to God for the gift of a child and then sacrificially dedicates him to God's work. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study past modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to our students for today's teaching. That I need God is as obvious as my lungs needing air. That God needs me is the lie the enemy whispers into my ear. That God wants me is the miracle of my life. That I want God is what matters now and forever. Father, I confess that needing you isn't enough to experience all you want for me. Ignite a desire for you in me tonight that begins to reflect your desire for me. Amen. The character I've chosen to speak on tonight can be found in a book all about desire. In most translations, it is one of two books in the Bible that don't even mention God. The book is the Song of Songs, otherwise known as the Song of Solomon, but I prefer the Song of Songs because just like the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, it implies that this is the finest song ever written. A friend calls it the marriage of love and wisdom. But I wonder if it isn't God's plan for the remarriage of love and wisdom after knowledge destroyed innocence in the Garden of Eden. While every book in the Bible reflects on why we should desire God, this one uniquely reflects on why God desires us. My character is known primarily as the Beloved, but in the Passion translation that I will be using tonight, he is referred to as the Shepherd King, followed by the Bridegroom King. In the interest of time and conciseness, I will be looking at his words only from the first four of eight chapters. I believe that if you know God, you know this character. But you may still be surprised at the depth of his desire for you. And just in case anyone doubts the gender flexibility of Christians, when biblically inspired, I'm going to ask all of us, regardless of gender, to imagine that we are his bride. Three hurdles might get in our way, and we'll deal with each of them as we progress. Hurdle one, because we live in a fallen world, the sensuality of the images makes them difficult to return to a spiritual context. Hurdle two, it's hard for some of us to accept God's intense desire for us but sadly, it is impossible to reflect it back fully until we do. 
Hurdle three, we need to stop denying our need for intimacy and embrace it as God given. With him alone as its solution, regardless of our circumstance. So let's ask God's help with hurdle one. Father, before I hear your beautiful words to me tonight, if my innocence is lost, restore it. If my innocence is damaged by the world, the flesh, and the devil, heal it so that I can hear you unhindered. Amen. I need to credit two Christians for their contributions. Julian Hardiman, whose book, Jesus, Lover of My Soul, and talks from the book, deeply moved a fellowship I belong to. And Brian Simmons, whose translation of and reading of Song of Songs brought it, it, brought it even more to life for me than I thought possible. Julian's book is available on Amazon, and Brian's recording is available on Audible. Song of Songs, Chapter 1, The Shepherd King. Yet you are so lovely. Yet you are so lovely like the fine linen tapestry hanging in the holy place. Listen, my radiant one. If you ever lose sight of me, just follow in my footsteps where I lead my lovers. Come with your burdens and cares. Come to the place near the sanctuary of my shepherds. My dearest one, let me tell you how I see you. You are so thrilling to me. Your tender cheeks are beautiful. Your earrings and gem-laden necklaces set them ablaze. We will enhance your beauty with golden ornaments studded with silver. My darling, you are so lovely. You are beauty itself to me. Your passionate eyes are like gentle doves. Two items to note. Listen, my radiant one. If you ever lose sight of me, just follow in my footsteps where I lead my lovers. <laughs> the reference to multiple lovers clearly moves this from the physical where that would cause catastrophic jealousy, a billion Christians jealous over Christ, into the spiritual, where sharing that love with others is among our deepest desires. I have been um, really touched in our church small group at the prayers that have gone up from a dear friend but for a dear friend, from a dear friend, as she comes towards the end of her life. In spiritual terms, we want to share our lovers. The second is this remarkable use and change of pronouns. We will enhance your beauty with golden ornaments studded with silver. This almost jarring and remarkable use of we is reminiscent of let us make man in our own image. A reference to the involvement of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But if you are still not convinced that the Shepherd King is Jesus, here are a few other reference points. And these, all credit for these goes to Julian Hardiman. From Genesis 1, 2 onwards, 
Marriage is central in human society. It's between a man and a woman. It is lifelong, exclusive, and sexual. A marriage is the only right setting for sexual relationships. A wedding is the ceremony that celebrates the unique joining of intimacy and faithfulness that is marriage. This includes the special joys of sexual love, but also the unbreakable commitment of one to another. It therefore provides a particularly powerful metaphor to understand God's relationship with his people. Yes, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, marriage was always about more than human love in the Bible, always pointing to God's love and our response. However, often in the Old Testament, the metaphor of spiritual marriage is used sadly and reproachfully to demonstrate how serious Israel's sin is by comparing idolatry to adultery. We find this early in the records of the nation's history in the incident of the golden calf. The Lord speaks of his jealousy in response, the kind of jealousy a husband rightly has for his wife. In the era of the prophets, the marriage metaphor really comes into its own. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and above all, poor, poor Hosea accuse Israel of indulging in adulterous behavior by worshiping other gods. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. Jeremiah 3, 14. Also notice the connection between the marriage image and redemption. Rescue from sin, a new beginning with a new master. Salvation is pictured as marriage. We see this again in Isaiah 62, where God's new work of redemption fulfilled in Christ, is portrayed as a woman becoming a bride with God as the bridegroom. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Isaiah 62, 5. Now into the New Testament, this pattern of imagery provides Jesus with a palette to paint himself with, just as he does with other Old Testament images, like shepherd, bread, water, and wine. So when Jesus calls himself a bridegroom, Matthew 9:15, John 3:29, or describes the kingdom of heaven as like a king preparing a wedding banquet for his son, Matthew 22, 1-2, or ten virgins going out to meet the bridegroom, Matthew 25, 1, everyone knows where the picture is coming from. Paul picks up the same imagery in Ephesians 5 and explores its depths. The husband is the head of the, the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Ephesians 5, 23 to 27. For Paul, Genesis is about far more than male-female relationships. It is about Jesus and his people. He is our husband. We are his wife. A profound mystery, but a vital reality. Ephesians 5, 32. Sometimes we are seen as already married to Jesus, but often we are engaged in getting ready for the great event of our lives, our wedding day. That seems to be 
the line of thought in 2 Corinthians 11:2. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Then finally, we see the future of marriage in Revelation 19. Lest, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, 7 to 9. Song of Songs, chapter 2, The Shepherd King. Yes, you are my darling companion. You stand out from all the rest. For though the thorns surround you, you remain as pure as a lily, more than all the others. Promise me, Jerusalem maidens, by the gentle gazelles and delicate deer, that you will not disturb my love until she is ready to arise. Arise, my dearest. Hurry, my darling, come away with me. I have come, as you have asked, to draw you to my heart and lead you out. For now is the time, my beautiful one. The season has changed. The bondage of your barren winter has ended and the season of hiding is over and gone. The rains have soaked the earth and left it bright with blossoming flowers. The season for singing and pruning the vines has arrived. I hear the cooing of doves in our land, filling the air with songs to awaken you and guide you forth. Can you not discern this new day of destiny breaking forth around you? The early signs of my purposes and plans are bursting forth. The budding vines of new life are now blooming everywhere. The fragrance of their flowers whispers, there is change in the air. Arise, my love, my beautiful companion, and run with me to the higher place. For now is the time to arise and come away with me. For you are my dove, hidden in the split open rock. It was I who took you and hid you up on high in the secret stairway of the sky. Let me see your radiant face and hear your sweet voice. How beautiful your eyes of worship and lovely your voice in prayer. You must catch the troubling foxes, those sly little foxes that hinder our relationship, for they raid our budding vineyard of love to ruin what I've planted within you. Will you catch them and remove them for me? We will do it together. I note particularly two warnings here, interspliced with the extravagant expressions of love. The first warning is very distinct. Promise me, Jerusalem maidens, by the gentle gazelles and delicate deer, that you'll not disturb my love until she is ready to arise. This is repeated for emphasis as the shepherd king's only line in chapter 3. Promise me, Jerusalem maidens, by the gentle gazelles and delicate deer, that you will not disturb my love until she is ready to arise. 
Notice how it's addressed to her peers in society. Even then, a peer pressure group can devastate. Innocence is a precious gift. The world will tell you it's naivety. It's not. It's innocence. It is not to be stolen or poured out until or unless God says we are ready. Second, at the end, and I saw lots of foxes on my little walk-in tonight, <laughs> lots of them everywhere. I see them in the summer running to the beach. You must catch the troubling foxes, those sly little foxes that hinder our relationship, for they raid our budding vineyard of love to ruin what I've planted within you. Will you catch them and remove them with me? We will do it together. Those little foxes are anything that impedes our intimacy with God and reduces its fruit. From as little as the late night and extra tap of the snooze button to the adultery of idolatry found in porn, casual sex, or an extramarital affair. What is so comforting about that warning is that he will help. Okay, so maybe you've overcome hurdle one and can look on this passage with refreshed innocence. Maybe you have even overcome the strangeness of looking at Christ, not just as the bridegroom for the church, but as your personal spiritual bridegroom, regardless of your gender. But it is an entirely different thing to fully and unreservedly accept his accolades about our beauty. Hurdle two. It's hard for some of us to accept God's intense desire for us, but it is impossible to fully reflect it back until we do. Here, Julian Hardiman offers this ancient prayer. For those of us who cannot see the goodness God sees in us, no matter how hard we try, we can at least see his goodness reflected in us. And that's what this prayer is all about. I'm going to pray it over us now. Father, let us come to see ourselves in thy beauty in everlasting life. That is, let me be so transformed in thy beauty that being alike in beauty, we may see ourselves both in thy beauty having thy beauty, so that one beholding the other, each may see his own beauty in the other, the beauty of both being thine only, and mine absorbed in thee. And thus I shall see thee in thy beauty, and myself in thy beauty, and thou shalt see me in thy beauty, and I shall see myself in thee, in thy beauty. And thou thyself in me, in thy beauty, so shall I seem to be thyself in thy beauty, and thou myself in thy beauty. My beauty shall be thine, Thine shall be mine, and I shall be thou in it, and thou myself in thine own beauty, for thy beauty will be my beauty, and so we shall see each the other in thy beauty. This is the adoption of the sons of God, 
who may truly say what the Son himself said to the Eternal Father. All my things are thine, and thine are mine. Amen. I'm going to skip chapter 3 as the shepherd king barely appears, but a voice from above, sounding an awful lot like God the Father, announces the shepherd king's wedding to his bride. <coughs> this father-in-law clearly gave his permission. The shepherd king is now referred to as the bridegroom king. As you hear his words, let him help you. Single, divorced, bereaved, happily or unhappily married, overcome hurdle three. We need to stop denying our need for intimacy and embrace it as God-given with him alone as its solution. And even a Christian marriage as its reflection. You know why he is so special. You wouldn't be listening now if you didn't know that. So hear now why you are so special. And about the new Garden of Eden he is recreating in you. Think of these words when next he asks to see your face. Chapter 4, The Bridegroom King. Listen, my dearest darling, you are so beautiful. You are beauty itself to me. Your eyes are like gentle doves behind your veil. What devotion I see each time I gaze upon you. You are like a sacrifice ready to be offered. When I look at you, I see how you have taken my fruit and tasted my word. Your life has become clean and pure like a lamb washed and newly shorn. You now show grace and balance with truth on display. Your lips are as lovely as Rahab's scarlet ribbon, speaking mercy, speaking grace. The words of your mouth are as refreshing as an oasis what pleasure you bring to me. I see your blushing cheeks opened like the halves of a pomegranate, showing through your veil of tender meekness. When I look at you, when I look at you, when I look at you, I see your inner strength so stately and strong. You are as secure as David's fortress. Your virtues and grace cause a thousand famous soldiers to surrender to your beauty. Your pure faith and love rest over your heart as you nurture those who are yet infants. Every part of you is so beautiful, my darling. Perfect is your beauty without flaw within. Now you are ready, my bride, to come with me as we climb the highest peaks together. Come with me through the archway of trust. We will look down from the crest of the glistening mountains and from the summit of our sublime sanctuary, from the lion's den and the leopard's lair, for you reach into my heart with one flash of your eyes, I am undone by your love. My beloved, my equal, my bride, you leave me breathless.
I am overcome by a mere glance from your worshipping eyes, for you have stolen my heart. I am held hostage by your love and by the graces of righteousness shining upon you. How satisfying to me, my equal, my bride. Your love is my finest wine, intoxicating and thrilling, and your sweet, perfumed praises, so exotic, so pleasing. Your loving words are like the honeycomb to me. Your tongue releases milk and honey, for I find the promised land flowing within you. The fragrance of your worshipping love surrounds you with scented robes of white. My darling bride, my private paradise, fastened to my heart, a secret spring that no one else can have are you. My bubbling fountain, hidden from public view. What a perfect partner to me, now that I have you. Your inward life is now sprouting, bringing forth fruit. What a beautiful paradise unfolds within you. When I am near you, I smell the aromas of the finest spice, for many clusters of exquisite fruit now grow within your inner garden. You are a fountain of gardens. A well of living water springs up from within you like a mountain brook flowing into my heart. Amen. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to part two of Arise. Um, my name's Denise, and I'm going to be sharing my thoughts on a character called Hannah. But before I do, we're just going to have a quick moment of prayer. So Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can read about all of these different people. And we thank you, Lord, um, about the story of Hannah. Thank you for her life. And we thank you um, what we can learn, what, yeah, what we can learn from her, Lord and what she teaches us about you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So this story is like a lot of really good stories. Um, there's a beginning, a middle, an end. There's problems, there's ups and downs, and there's challenges. And this story really attracted me because Hannah is quite an ordinary woman. The name Hannah means grace. And as we go through her story, we see that in some very difficult and challenging situations in her life, she responds with grace and she kind of lives up to her name in that way. She wasn't rich, she wasn't famous, she's not a queen, she's not a judge, she's not a prophet, but just ordinary like many women uh, of her time. And I wondered why, if somebody like this, so ordinary, found their way into the pages of the Bible for all time. I wondered why that was. And I think as we go through her story, we will discover things about her. We know that she was born and lived in the time when there was judges. There wasn't a king then in Israel. And we know that she's the wife of a man called Elkanah. He has two wives. We know um, that in that time it was not uncommon for a man to have more than one wife. And so that was quite a, a thing that happened in that time. We know that Hannah couldn't conceive a child and that was a source of great unhappiness to her. It wasn't really uh, a time when women had many options. 
if they, if they were married, they were kind of expected to have children. They couldn't go and have a career. There wasn't really anything open to them. And Hannah was just sort of stuck in a situation. The only option she really had was to keep going, to keep praying and to keep hoping. We know she lived in the hill country of Ephraim. She was married, as I said, to Elkanah, and he is, was a descendant from the tribe of Levi. And uh, that's quite interesting as it ties into the story, as the story unfolds. I just want to read from um, the book of Samuel now, just so we have the beginning bit of the story. And it says, the NIV version, this is, year after year, Elkanah went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. Shiloh was where the temple was. Whenever the day came for him to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year whenever Hannah went to the house of the Lord. There her rival provoked her till she wept and she would not eat. And her husband said to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Well, we know he loves Hannah because it tells us in Samuel 1, 1 to 16, you get the impression that he's not really concerned that she hasn't given him children. He tries to console her. But I think there's a little bit of frustration there too. I think it shows that he doesn't quite understand her pain. When he goes to um, Shiloh to make the annual sacrifice, he doesn't go alone, but he takes his children, his wives, his possessions, an animal with him. And I just thought, what a palaver. All that stuff he had to take with him. And uh, I wondered, I wonder if he ever thought, I wish I could just go by myself. Might be a bit easier. Um, but he doesn't, and I think that shows that he had a spiritual responsibility for his family. We know he had a reverence for God. Pen Penina, the other wife, is described as Hannah's rival and the enemy that provokes her. Different translations of the Bible use the words such as taunt, insult, insult or tease in a cruel way gives the impression that she was quite relentless. And I had to ask myself a question, well, why did she do that? Why did she cause Hannah so much misery? Could it have been jealousy? Maybe she was finding life difficult herself. She had a lot of children to look after. Maybe Panina felt left out. Um, maybe she just felt she wasn't getting any love or recognition from her husband. The Talmud and Midrash, which are ancient Jewish commentaries and interpretations of scripture attached to the Bible, say that Hannah was Elkanah's first wife, that he only took a second wife to keep tradition. It says that if a man was married for 10 years and his wife bore him no children, he was required to take another wife in order to fulfill the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. It also states that Hannah may have been barren for about 19 years. His marriage to Penina then seemed to fill an obligation. It's a story we've heard before, isn't it? There was Sarah and Abraham, and then Hagar. There was Rachel, who married to Jacob, and also Leah, her sister, and then Bela. And it seems that in those situations, there was always friction. It was never straightforward. Well, Hannah means grace. That's the meaning of her name. And in those years of the taunting, she doesn't seem to retaliate. She's quite quiet. She behaves with a measure of self-control. But the pain comes out because pain has to come out, doesn't it? If we keep it quiet, it comes out in another way. And in Hannah's case, she was downcast. 
we'd say she was depressed. She was weeping, unable to eat. The emotional distress was evident, but she kept quiet. Then one year, something changes for their annual journey, going to make their sacrifice. And something changes within Hannah. We don't know exactly what provoked her to do this, but she gets honest with God. In her deep anguish, she prays to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Have you ever prayed like that? It's a real prayer of the heart, a desperate, desperate plea. And she makes a vow and she says, this is verse 11 now, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. That was a symbol of dedication, the razor not being used on his head. She is so desperate for a son, she makes a desperate prayer. And her feelings are not really hard to understand. In her culture, being married without children meant lots of things. It meant perhaps that um, your society around you thought that you'd done something, perhaps that you were wicked, perhaps you'd been cursed. It meant that you'd have no security in your old age. She wouldn't have been able to go and draw a pension. Hannah must have felt at times, what have I done wrong? Why is this happening to me? And I think that perhaps she was suffering from a sense of low self-worth. I mean, that's something that's still evident now in today's society with all the things around us, all the choices available to us. We still suffer, don't we, with low self-worth where we don't realise how valuable we are to God. But despite all this, I really believe that Hannah knew who God was. He was the one who sustained her. She knew his character. She knew him as the Lord God Almighty, the one who could respond to her grief. And in her prayer, she's fervent, honest, she's humble. We get the impression that when she prays, she just gets it all out. Nothing is left unsaid. And it says that after she'd prayed, she got up and went to eat. It's as though there was a peace about her. The next bit of the story, Anna is misunderstood. Eli is watching. He is the priest at the temple. He's not very impressed with Hannah. He can see her lips moving, but he cannot hear a sound. He accuses her of being drunk. But again, she just responds with dignity and grace. I'm not a wicked woman. I've been praying out of my anguish and grief. Hannah was praying in the spirit. And he realizes in verse 17, he says, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. And we know not long after that, Hannah returns home. She becomes pregnant and she names her baby Samuel because she says, I ask the Lord for him. She recognises he is a gift from God. Another meaning for that name is God has heard. God has heard my prayer. And then we go on to another part of the story now, which is really difficult to get to grips with, because we read that when the boy is weaned, about at the age of three, Hannah makes good her vow. Samuel's still so little, and she must have loved him with all her heart. He was so long-awaited. But she decides that she must go back and dedicate him as she promised to do. I think that shows that she has a real strength of character. I mean, it also made me think, be mindful what you say in prayer. Um, but she made a vow, and she's determined to fulfil it. It's a demonstration of her obedience, even at the cost of this extreme personal sacrifice. She proves to be a woman of her word. Her love and trust in God is greater than her own desires. And it reminds me a bit of another story in different circumstances. You remember when I, I, um, Abraham was asked to lay down Isaac 
And, you know, it must have been such a traumatic request for him. But he was obedient to that. He trusted that God would deliver him in some way. Hannah is willing to give everything up to the Lord. And she proves this by letting go of Samuel. When she goes to make the annual sacrifice that year, she knows that she's going to be coming back without Samuel. Can you imagine her journey? I wonder, did she try and make it fun? Did she try and explain it to him? Perhaps she hid her feelings. Perhaps it was a journey of tears. We don't know. When she arrives at the temple, she sees Eli, and in 1 Samuel 26, 28, she says, Just as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here with you in order to pray that the Lord would give me a child. I prayed for this boy, and the Lord has given me the request that I asked of him. Now I dedicate him to the Lord. From this time on, he is dedicated. Then they worship the Lord there. She trusted in God's plan and his sovereignty. Then something quite extraordinary happens. You would expect her to be breaking down now, sobbing and clinging on to her son. But no, she prays another prayer. And this is sometimes called the prayer of triumph. It's also part of their Magnificat, a prayer to magnify God. Mary prays a similar prayer in Luke. It's called Mary's Song. And that's another prayer that praises God in the same way. Hannah speaks about God's greatness. She makes a declaration. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high, for he has granted me success over my adversary. I imagine she's meaning Penina in that, that part of the prayer. But this is a very different woman to the one that was praying before, because this woman is praying from a place of victory. She's praying from a place of strength. She's rejoicing in God's goodness. She proclaims there's no rock like our God. And then something quite astounding happens. First, on Samuel 2 verse 10, she says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What did she mean? She could not have known that Samuel would grow up and be the last judge of Israel or the priest that would anoint King David. She couldn't have known of the genealogy of Jesus. When you read the account of Jesus' family tree, of course Hannah and Samuel are not mentioned in it, and yet their story, their obedience are so important. In Matthew it says in the account, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. She couldn't have known, could she, what she was praying. The word anointed is the same as the word used for Messiah. She was declaring the coming of Jesus. I believe in that moment, full of the Spirit, she was prophesying. Hannah means favour, as well as grace. God's favour was upon Hannah because she wasn't left childless, but she gave birth to more children. Verse 19 says that each year she made Samuel a little robe and took it to him when she went to the annual sacrifice. And then Eli would pray with her and her husband. May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she gave up. The Lord was gracious to Hannah and gave birth. She gave birth to three more sons and two daughters. She kept going back for more blessing. And I just thought, what an example. You can't outgive God, can you? She gave up Samuel and he blessed her and blessed her and kept blessing her. God works through Hannah's story. He's in the center and we see it's not really a story about Hannah or Samuel, but about God's faithfulness and his tenderness and his plan. He's a God who cares deeply for ordinary people, living ordinary lives. 
He's a God who listens and in his time in response to prayers from the heart. He's a God who doesn't change. He's still wanting to be the centre of our ordinary lives today. The big things and the little things. The easy things and the difficult things. But what struck me most about Hannah's story was the link between her and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Both women had difficult circumstances surrounding the birth of their children. Both knew what it was like to give up a child. Both women obedient to God. Both experienced his faithfulness. Both of their prayers formed part of the Magnificat and used similar phrases. Two women, one Old Testament and one New Testament. Years and years apart, but linked into a plan for a saviour. Paul writes in Philippians 4.6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. His timing is perfect, isn't it? What should we do when we're not praying, though? What, what do we do then? Psalm 37 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Hannah was so patient, wasn't she? It says, Do not fret when people succeed in their ways or carry out wicked schemes. In other words, keep calm and trust God. I think Hannah did that. I think God developed in her so many gifts along the way. She was prayerful. She was patient. She had resilience. She got her voice. She spoke back to Eli when he challenged her. She had a confidence and a determination. My takeaway from Hannah's story is to keep on praying and try not to be impatient with God's timing. I wonder what yours would be. Amen. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk if you would like to partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.